Hi, I'm Brandon Dawson, and this is The Distiller, a podcast about how we find meaningful work and how we find meaning in the work we do. Today's guest is chef and restaurateur Derek Dos Anjos, owner and head chef of the Anchor OTR in Cincinnati's Over the Rhine neighborhood. You may remember that we recorded our very first episode with Dan Corman at the Anchor back in 2017. Well, Derek is now a guest on the show. We met him at Old Kentucky Bourbon Bar in Covington, Kentucky. If you're a fan of Kentucky bourbon, and both Derek and I are, there may be no better place on earth to sample the full spectrum of bourbons than OKBB. We sipped glasses of Woodford Reserve's double-oaked bourbon as we talked about Derek's path coming up in restaurants, being trained and guided by his mentor in New York, and eventually making the decision to leave the city and move back home to Ohio to open his own place. The Anchor is perennially voted as the best seafood restaurant in Cincinnati. And while you may not think the Midwest has much to say about seafood, Derek's rigorous practices of sourcing only the best and most sustainable seafood result in a menu that rivals any you'll find on the coasts. And it boasts his famous lobster rolls from New England to Cincinnati via Brooklyn and the West Village. My favorite part of this conversation was hearing Derek talk about what he learned coming up that kind of sets him apart as a chef and an owner. And it wasn't one great recipe. It wasn't some specific kitchen skill. It's a particular orientation to the people he works with and who work for him. I won't give it away. I'll let Derek tell you himself. Here's our conversation with Chef Derek Dos Anjos on The Distiller. Derek, first of all, thank you for uh, being willing to be on the show. Absolutely. Really appreciate it. You were the host for our first episode. Yeah. Now you're back as a guest. As a guest. It's great to have you on the show. I'm excited to hear a little bit about your story. And as everybody can hear, it's Friday afternoon. We're at Old Kentucky Bourbon Bar in Covington, Kentucky. There's a little bit of noise going on in the background. But it's a lively spot, and we're going to have a lively discussion, and it's all good. Yeah. the pros are here. The, all the said. pros you were asking, like who shows up at two o'clock on a Friday, it's the pros. It's pre-game. Well, let's, let's start off a little bit uh, and tell us, I want to get into the discussion of the anchor mm-hmm. and everything that led to that, but I also want to know a little bit about you from your background. You're an Ohio boy, raised uh, just north of Cincinnati in Wilmington, is that right? I was raised, uh, I was raised in Wilmington, Ohio. I was born in Xenia, Ohio, which is about a half hour North. Okay. Um, my father is Brazilian, and my mother is from Wilmington, Ohio. Dairy farm girl. All right. And, uh, yeah, I was... Midwestern uh, gal. Yeah, six months old. They met at Wilmington College. I was six months old, and we moved to Brazil. Okay. So I spent the first uh, six and a half years of my life uh, living as a Brazilian boy. Where in, in Brazil? Uh, Vitoria, Espírito uh, Santo, which is about 300 miles north of Rio. Okay. Yeah. And, and you lived there until you were how old? About six and a half. Do you still um, speak Portuguese? No. Uh, I was just talking to someone about this the other day. Uh, we moved back here. I could speak English, but I refused to uh-huh. until I realized that uh, the teachers weren't going to let me out for recess. <laughs> and I was like, so well, you played along. I played along. I said, well, if that's the case, then we're speaking English and only English. Right. And uh, yeah. Get with the program. Get with the program. So, right. I, you know, I understand some uh, Portuguese. I've been back a few times and can order dinner, get a taxi, that kind of Just thing. Just enough. Right. Yeah. Right on. So you, uh, you grew up in Wilmington, in Xenia. Uh, you went to college in... I went Richmond? to Earlham College in Richmond, Indiana. Okay. So with a sociology anthropology degree. So no, up to this point... Were you? Did you have dreams of working in the food industry? Or? No dreams. Okay. Um, but you, loved food. You okay. know, sort of grew up. 
um, eating really great food, whether it was out of the garden by my cooked by my mom and my grandmother, or whether it was as a young, very very young kid in Brazil, eating uh, seafood on the coast in Vitoria. Okay. Um, sort of had really good fond memories of that. Right on. And did you cook when you were younger? Uh, I you know I attempted uh, you know cookouts, grilling steak, burgers, that kind of thing, mm-hmm. but um, ha- didn't really touch on the culinary side of it. But back then, that wasn't a thing. Yeah, yeah. You know, people didn't go to culinary school. Right, certainly not like it is now. No. Yeah. And then straight out of college, moved to Chicago. Straight out of college, uh, moved to Chicago. To do what? Uh, I didn't know. Okay. Just to get out? Uh, just, just it was sort of the job. summer right after college. All right. uh, I had a girlfriend there, and... Uh, I couldn't find a job even as a, you know, uh, baristas weren't a thing, but I couldn't get right. a job at a coffee shop, right. basically. Yeah. So eventually made my way back to Cincinnati after a few months in Chicago and uh, got a job as uh, in a kitchen um, here on Main Street. I don't think the place is definitely not there anymore. Main Street Cafe, uh-huh. um, making sandwiches. Nice. And then realized that, like, okay, I, c- I can do this for money. Right. Um, Walked into the Phoenix, and they hired me on the spot, and I was there what they call garmanger, which uh, working in making salads and desserts. Okay. And um, no, like no only experience. experience at no that ex- point was making sandwiches. Right. On the I was street. making five fifty an hour, <laughs> maybe a little bit more. But so this wasn't like I've got a dream, and this is where I'm going to start at the bottom of the no, ladder. No, this was this I is... need to pay rent. Yeah. Otherwise, I have to move back home, and I was not doing that. So at some point, though, you you connect to it. Right, so uh, after about, I don't know, six, seven months, um, there was an English chef at the Phoenix at the time. His name was Paul Teal. Um, they had decided that the, the people that owned the Phoenix were going to open up a restaurant called Plaza 600 at the new Aronoff Center, which is now Nada. Mm-hmm. And um, they were bringing in this chef uh, named Jimmy Gibson, who had worked at the Phoenix previously. And um, I thought, well, I want to go do that. Right. So, and that was my first experience with like big city cooking. Okay. He had just come back from New York, and um, again, I was still sort of low person on the totem pole, but um, I wanted to be the saute cook. You know, yeah. I wanted to be the grill cook, and I was able to uh, sort of work my way through each station and uh, experience. But you really that. did start from the ground up. From I the mean, ground not up. even like culinary school, and you come in as small places sous chef, but you. You are ground up yeah, from and the I, very beginning. And I had mentioned to Jimmy at the time, you know, I'd really like to do this. He goes, well, you got to read some books. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, what do you mean read books? Like, He's like, go get some cookbooks. So I spent my, my paycheck at Barnes & Noble's yeah. looking through cookbooks and figuring out what I wanted to do. What, what did you enjoy? What did you connect with? Well, I really wanted books? to go to New York and cook. I yeah. was told that that was sort of the... Um, culinary center of the world at the time mm-hmm. um, and my current girlfriend at the time who's now my wife um, Jocelyn DeSanjos had moved to New York and so I spent a year here in Cincinnati working and saving my money and then I moved um, moved to Brooklyn Okay. and uh, that was like uh, a kid getting out of a spaceship and landing yeah. in a different one small step a different for man. world yeah, yeah. Um, you're how old at this point? I was 22, 23 years old. Okay. 
Yeah. Stepping into Brooklyn. Stepping into Brooklyn. Uh, I believe I packed my pickup truck up and drove it to Brooklyn and thought, what the hell am I doing? <laughs> yeah. And was very scared. And it was one of those things where, like, I went looking for a job. This is also Brooklyn before Brooklyn was sexy. Brooklyn before Brooklyn was sexy. Yeah. It was one of those things where, like, in order to get an apartment, you had to have uh, a bank account. In order yes. to have a bank account, you needed a job. Right. In order to get a job, you needed a place to live. I don't really remember how I resolved those things, but I just remember thinking, this is insane. <laughs> but here I am. Here I am. So my first job was actually uh, working at, in the cafeteria of the Chase Manhattan Bank uh, on Wall Street. Wow. And I had to get up, take the subway at like four in the morning. Uh-huh. And uh, it was all Haitian cooks in the kitchen. And I definitely was the odd person out. Um, but I stuck it out for a few months. And I sort of gained that New York mentality and was able to get my bearings in the subway. Yeah. And after work, because I'd get off work around two, I would take my resume with three restaurants on them. and. You know, two of those were in Cincinnati, Ohio, and I would hand them to walk into restaurants. Because yeah. this was before the internet. Yeah. This was before uh, Craigslist, or you really had to hit the pavement. And um, I got a job at this um, really cool place in uh, Soho called Monzu. And I didn't work there very long because it wasn't a very good situation, but it was um, Adam Perry Lang, who's now opening a restaurant, a steakhouse in L.A. (laughs) He's been on Food Network shows, and um, he was the chef there. And so I sort of got that New York experience. But I sort of had my eye on this place called Pearl Oyster Bar. Why? Because it was all seafood, and that's what I felt like I really wanted to do. Okay. And I had walked in and talked to the chef, and they were like, well, it's just the two of us. And uh, we're not hiring. You know, we're, we only do one service a day. We don't need anybody. We don't need anybody. Yeah. And so I said, okay, well, here's my resume. And I left. And a few weeks later, maybe it was a month later, I looked in the Village Voice, and there was a review of Pearl Oyster Bar, and it said at the very bottom that they were going to open for lunch if they could find some help. Wow. So I got off work, and I went straight down there, and I said, I'm your guy. Right on. And she's like, Okay. So I was their first employee, and um, I sort of got to do everything. You know, I was the uh, oyster shucker, the prep guy, the lunch uh, line guy. I did the dishes. I took in the orders that came in in the morning. And all these people started coming in. It was a very small place. There were, I think there were 28 seats, and uh, 12 of them were at a counter at at the bar. The rest of them, it was, there was two tables, and the rest of them were on another counter behind. And um, they'd be like, there's this guy out there, uh, his name's Mario Batali. <laughs> or, you know, there's, uh, and I had no idea who right, these people were. Guy, yeah. yeah, and he yeah. wasn't even a thing yet. Right. But um, Calvin Trillin, Ruth Reichel, all these sort of literary, culinary people were coming in. And I was like, this is pretty cool. Is that, was that because just where it was, or was it because the place was really making a name for itself? It was making a name for itself. It was two independent women that were um, sort of pumping out this New England-style seafood that you really didn't get anywhere outside of New England. Hmm. And it was very simple. You know, there was nothing. The, the menu was grilled vegetables, grilled fish, lobster rolls, oysters, clams, steamers, mm-hmm. chowder. Blueberry pie. I mean, Sundays. That was stuff. it. Was the real no stuff? Fluff, yeah. yeah, no fluff. And um, it was quite an experience. Uh, towards my second year there, 
um, which seemed like an eternity in some ways, um, the partnership between the two owners um, fell out. Okay. Um, Rebecca Charles and Mary Redding were the owners, and uh, I felt like I was caught in the middle a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, understandably, I worked really hard, and all of a sudden <laughs> I was being asked to choose sides. Yeah, yeah. Not really, but it felt that way. Um, so I decided at that point that maybe cooking wasn't my thing. Really? And uh, I had worked with this kid uh, at Pearl. Who's, uh, his name was Edward Thornton III, and his father was the mayor of San Antonio. Okay. And um, we called him Ted. Ted's girlfriend was a higher up at Viacom. <laughs> and uh, she was like, hey, if you want to come work for us at MTV. Seriously? Like, oh. Yeah, seriously. And I was like, really? How much does it pay? It paid 150 bucks a day, which uh-huh. was more than I ever made in any kitchen. Right. I said, sure. Timing is perfect. Timing is perfect. get out of this relationship. So uh, I jumped ship and I uh, became a production assistant at, during, sort. it was 1998, 99. Um, so Y2K was a thing. Chris mm-hmm. Rock was big. Snoop Dogg, all of that stuff. And um, it was and fun. kind of the height of the era of MTV, of MTV producing their own content and getting away from videos and all that. TRL stuff. was a thing. Yeah, Carson yeah, yeah. Daly. Yep. Um, I ended up driving a box truck around uh, Manhattan to uh, for video sets and stuff like that. But got had some really neat experiences. Um, got to sit in a room with Annie Lennox and Dave Stewart talking about the making of Sweet Dreams. Wow. Um, Michael hanging out with Michael Stipe while they were talking about making his videos, so it was fun. Yeah, but it didn't Some last. Some heady long. stuff. Heady stuff. Yeah, but I think ultimately um, working with my hands and um, being in the restaurant was really where my heart was. And I uh, went back one day in Brooklyn and ran into a friend. He's like, "Hey, we're opening a restaurant here on Fifth Avenue," which back then you didn't go to Fifth Avenue, mm-hmm. uh, and it was called Vox. And uh, it was a, a French restaurant. Um, the guys that opened it up worked for David Waltuck, who owned Chanterelle mm-hmm. in, in Soho, which was a critically acclaimed um, restaurant at the time. Um, so, so it's going to be something special. So it's going to be something special. And so I, you made the jump. I made the jump and was their grill cook for a year and um, loved it. Just made some of my best friends there. Um, Time, then the timeline goes, I went to, uh, decided, it's 2000, um, Jocelyn and I moved to um, Chicago, mm-hmm. decided to get away, get, get away from New York. Okay. With that was probably to... six years into my experience in New York. All right. Just a plan to, uh, again, I still, you know, wasn't quite sure what I, what I wanted to do. Um, I had a friend there whose father... Uh, was a retired fireman who had his own sort of construction carpentry business, and so I started working for him. Okay. And uh, but not in food. Not in food again. Um, and that was a way of having a job once I moved right, back right. to Chicago. But the plan at that point, you you'd been out of food. You worked for MTV for how long? Maybe six months, seven okay. months, something like that. And when you got back into the restaurant in Brooklyn, you have you have the idea now. This is actually what I want to do. Like you got right, you got a chance to step out, and you decided no, that's actually where my heart is. Right. So the Chicago move. Chicago move was uh, eventually going back into the kitchen, but okay. sort of uh, needed needed a job right away. Okay. 
And uh, after I think about three or four months, I landed a job as the sous chef at a place called Bistro Zinc. Um, it's still there. Um, it is open um, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. So it was quite a kick in the face uh, yeah. to be the sous chef for that place because you were required to be there the whole time. The whole time. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So what about these early experiences in food did you really gravitate toward? I mean, you said when you were young you liked, you liked food. And, well, it was what, the, what pulled you in in those first experiences? I think it was the camaraderie. It was working with your hands. It was um, creating something out of nothing and being able to show somebody and getting an immediate reaction from it. Mm-hmm. It's either good or it's not good. And, um, yep. Uh, and it was it was exciting as well. Yeah, I heard uh, Bourdain. I was just listening to him on some on something else, where he was basically talking about it as performance. There's no delayed no, knowledge it's immediate, about whether right. Yeah, you, you know, know every day yeah. if you did it right. Right. Yeah. And growing up on a farm, uh, I had a I still have a great work ethic, and that fulfilled that part for me. Okay. Getting up every day, going in, knowing what I had to do. And the beauty of it was was that I didn't have someone standing over me mm-hmm. pounding at me. I was able to uh, prove to them my worth on a daily basis, right. and I was rewarded for it. Do you think those opportunities, like the way that you got in, still exist anymore? I mean, with what food has become, with the Food Network and cooking shows and celebrity chefs, can you still break in? You can. You okay. can. But you have to want to do it. Um, I, actually, I got a phone call uh, yesterday from a kid that we all know, um, Drake Cameron. Oh, really? Wants to be a cook, wants to be a chef. I love it. And so we're going to bring him in on our busiest night to chef oysters and show him what it's about. That's fantastic. You know, because it's not glamorous. And no. a lot of these kids, when they go to culinary school, think that they're going to go out and make sixty to eighty thousand dollars a year, and it's not the case. They're making um, ten to fourteen dollars an hour. Well, I mean, a lot of them end up, you know, running somebody's cafeteria or something yeah. like that. There just aren't those jobs. Uh, the New England Culinary Institute, I, was, I had some association and knew uh-huh. what was going on there for a while. And I think a lot of those kids got in there with the idea that they were going to be Mario Batali. Yeah. And they end up smoking a lot of weed for a, a couple of years and then, yeah. like, running somebody's cafeteria. Right, and then realizing that it's actually work. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. It's not just instant celebrity and you know six figures. Yeah, I mean, I'm a you know I'm a, a big believer in the you know the Malcolm Gladwell ten thousand hour mm-hmm. thing that you have to put in the time to yep on the back end to be an expert right and well so along those lines because that that points at mastery um, in those early experiences in uh, in the the place in the village mm-hmm. in those subsequent experiences what did you learn like what were the specific things that you picked up in every one of those experiences I learned how to run a business I learned how to react to situations that were intense and that were uh, you know these people work work their butts off they're tired they're, they're there to please the customer but at the same time they have to cut the check at the, mm-hmm. you know so the produce get and the electric get paid yep and um, watching that balance and seeing the stress that it puts on a small business owner, um, I think has led me to be successful because I'm able to take those, you know, people are like, well, you're so level-headed and you're cool about stuff. It's like, well, 
I've seen what can happen if you're not. <laughs> right. You know? Right. Yeah. And um, at the end of the day, it's just food. It's not, it's not, it's not brain surgery. Right. We're not, you know, lives don't depend. I mean, they depend on it, but yeah, nobody's going to die. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. It's funny, though, because I, I expected that you would say, you know, whatever, knife skills. You know, like I, uh, well, and, and for you to say, it's really interesting for you to say, I learned how to run a business, not I learned how to make a, a perfect bechamel or I learned how to make like whatever. That is, that is really, number one, it points at what you're doing now, right. which is sort of that combination of running a restaurant and being a chef. Right. That you can't do that without the business sense. Right. I mean, I think a lot of people get in over their heads. Uh, you know, oh, I can do this. I know how to, I know my menu. I'm going to cook it. Mm -hmm. I know what food cost is. I know what labor cost is about. Um, and that's it. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, there's a whole other side, a business side of it that has to be attended right. to. That's savvy. I want to, yeah. I want to spend some time on that, but I want to, I want to bring us up to, to present first. Okay. So, so Chicago. Chicago, um, a long, uh, year, 10 months, 12 months there, uh, most of it was winter time, lots of snow, lots of work. Mm -hmm. um, uh, three, my one of three services a day. Three services a day. Um, my good friend Mary Redding, who was partnered with Rebecca Charles at Pearl Oyster Bar, had started an offshoot called Mary's Fish Camp. Okay. And she'd heard through a mutual friend that maybe I wasn't so happy in Chicago, mm -hmm. so she called and she offered a job um, to be her sous chef at Mary's Fish Camp. Back in New York. Back in New York. And it had only been open for about three months and uh, open to critical acclaim and a lot of success. Again, it was a very small place. Um, strong female owner, which was Mary, and chef. Uh, and um, she just needed someone who had her back. Mm -hmm. And so I, we moved, you know, load up the U-Haul in the middle of the night and go straight back to New York. Wow. At this point in our recording, unfortunately, we ran into a technical glitch and we lost some audio. Derek was just in the process of describing his move back to New York City a month before September 11th, 2001, and taking a job at Mary's Fish Camp in the West Village. Mary's Fish Camp is one of a couple places in New York famous for their lobster rolls, and we pick back up with Derek telling us why lobster rolls became such a big thing in New York in the first decade of the 2000s, and why Mary's Fish Camp and Pearl's Oyster Bar were the two places that got it right. And so everybody wanted to compare who has the better lobster roll. Right. Um, really, those two places were sort of the genesis for lobster rolls all over the country. And uh, 2004, 2005, when the bottom fell out of Wall Street, mm -hmm. um, Wall Streeters weren't spending money on homes and boats and cars. Lobster prices had fallen, so it was a luxurious item that they could afford. So right. people were all on lobster rolls, <laughs> which sort of uh, brought in uh, Luke's Lobsters, uh, uh, which is now world fam famous. I think I got a American Express ad that had Luke's Lobsters, <laughs> had his picture on it. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. These are people that... It turned we, into a really big deal a really outside big, of right, Manhattan. Right. right. And, um, and uh, what I want to say here, it's, it's one of those things where everyone thinks that it's easy to duplicate, mm -hmm. um, but outside of... Mary Redding and Rebecca Charles and a few other people, nobody else has the ability to do what, what they have done. Yeah. It's one of those one of those things in life that looks simple, 
And is not. It is not. And when you when you find the right thing, when you get right. the real deal, it was a timing thing as well. You yeah. know. Yeah. yeah. So this relationship with Mary, she she is. Uh, She's a mentor. Yeah, she, and, and, a, and a conscious one. She's said that she wants to be that for you. She right. has not just taken you under her wing practically, but she's said, I want to invest in you. And, and Right, so then in 2006, uh, we decide to partner up and open an offshoot of Mary Switch Camp in Brooklyn. Okay. And we find a location um, in Park Slope, and uh, we built it out together, and we opened in 2006, I believe. Um, it was August. Um, and our opening night, we had a fire above oh. the restaurant and uh, burned the place down. Wow. Yeah. Actually, the place didn't burn down. What actually happened was... Talking about dealing with adversity. Yeah. yeah. So the apartment above us caught on fire, and the fire department came in and threw a ton of water into there, and it all came down into our space. Yeah. Um, so it took us another four months to fix everything and reopen. But, um, yeah, that was a definite... Uh, stabbed through the heart, uh, you know, um, having gone through 9-11 and then a fire, it's like every time I hear a fire truck, hairs in the back of my neck stand up. <laughs> PTSD. Yeah. yeah. Um, it was a, definitely a night I'll never forget. Wow. That's for sure. But we, we, we opened and reopened, mm-hmm. and um, that winter, um, Time Out New York came out with their best of issue and gave us the Best New Brooklyn Restaurant Award, wow. which That's was huge. Fantastic. Yeah. And, um, and now this place, the Brooklyn place, the, the uh, village place, the original place still exists. You're running the Brooklyn place. This is effectively your restaurant? Correct. Okay. And I'm also a co-owner of that restaurant. Right, right. Um, yeah, so great success in the beginning. Um, and then like anything... Uh, you know, financial crisis, the, mm-hmm. uh, I think Bush won a second term in office. Yeah. Uh, it just sort of uh, petered out. Yeah, all of these factors. Yeah, so seven years in um, and two kids in, uh, Jocelyn and I decide that uh, we would like to move back to Ohio, back to Cincinnati where, um, you know, rent isn't 5000 a month and yeah. daycare isn't 2000 a month. And, and Brooklyn at that point is only just I mean, taking it's, off. It's skyrocketing. Yeah, yeah. And I, I'll never forget the, the first day back in Cincinnati, I opened up the New York Times, and there's this giant article about Brooklyn being the center of the universe mm-hmm. for uh, <laughs> art and, and commerce and yeah. everything. And I was like, what have I done? <laughs> <laughs> I was, I was sitting I in a parking lot at 150 degrees. and Well, luckily, all these years later, now you're seeing the New York Times articles about Over about, the Rhine right. being so, the center of the universe. So we, we, we get here in, in 2011 in, in, the, in August, and then um, by September 2012, we found a location, built it out, and had opened the anchor. Okay. And uh, we decided to open in Over the Rhine because it reminded us of Brooklyn 1 and 2, uh, there was sort of a, uh, a renaissance happening down here. Buildings were being um, revitalized, and we wanted to be a part of that. For listeners that are outside of Cincinnati and don't know, we've talked about Over the Rhine before, but Over the Rhine is uh, a neighborhood just north of downtown in Cincinnati, the largest intact historical district in the United States. Mm-hmm. Really beautiful neighborhood that has undergone a renaissance not unlike Brooklyn right. in the last you know, 10 
12 years and is now kind of some of the most desirable place to live. But you guys were, uh, it's funny, our first episode was with Dan Corman, which was recorded mm -hmm. at the Anchor. I was mm -hmm. talking to Dan about opening up his store, Park and Vine, and sort of being a pioneer there on Vine Street. You guys sort of pioneered a bunch of restaurants that now exist yeah. on Race Street. You know, what, there's probably 15, Yeah, we were Yeah, we were number four that wow. opened. Yeah. Um, and, and just to go back to what you were saying about the, the similarity between Over the Rhine and Brooklyn, it, the, the only other place that has this much Italianate architecture is Brooklyn. Yeah. Over the Rhine and Brooklyn. So that's Which is why they're filming movies set in historic Brooklyn right. Right. in Over the Rhine, like Carol and, and the Gotti movie that's about right. to come out. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So um, I want to talk a little bit about that, that transition before we move into the anchor, I want to talk a little bit more about the learning and about what shapes your career there. Because I think a lot of people think, I imagine people that are listening to the podcast, some of them uh, are, are potentially dissatisfied in what they're doing. Sure. Some of them think, well, God, if I could do anything I wanted to do, I'd open a restaurant. Right. Who have no idea what that actually takes. You, you've already said that some of the things that you learned that were most important were actually how to run a business. Mm -hmm. But talk about the, the different skills that it takes, because there's the food skills. Sure. Like, you might have all the business sense in the world, you might just not have but any you taste. Cook, right. Yeah. So how do you develop those skills, and what's most important as you're coming up in your career? Are there milestones that you remember where you, where you suddenly thought, oh, I'm actually pretty good at this? Well, I remember specifically feeling like, you know, when I was the became the chef at Mary's Fish Camp, I was like, holy cow, like, she's handing me the keys to her Ferrari, essentially. Mm -hmm. Like, she's letting me run the ship here. Yeah. And uh, I better be a guy who's, like, on it and knows what she wants and uh, produces the same food that she would make. Yep. You know, it wasn't about my voice, per se. It was about her voice because right. it was her place and then once we moved over to Brooklyn I was able to say hey I go to this Thai place every Sunday and they make this amazing dish I'm going to try and replicate it because I feel like it goes well with our type of seafood mm -hmm. and you know going out eating dinners at diff for, with different you know in different restaurants by different chefs I was able to create my own voice. Right. I knew I liked to eat, and that's the food that I was producing. But you got to do that because you spent the years taking seriously your responsibility to accomplish somebody else's vision. Absolutely. Yeah, which I think is true in almost every right. career. Like right. you spend the time doing something for somebody else, and then maybe you eventually get to the time right. to I do mean, your if own you, thing. Right. If you look at the way I develop a menu, and you look at the way Mary develops a menu, we'd probably say well, they're the same thing. Mm -hmm. they, are, they are the same thing. But there's little nuances. There's my personality and there's her personality. Yep. Um, I feel like I've been successful because um, a lot of the food, a lot of the way I see food is has a more feminine perspective than a masculine perspective. I don't have, I'm my, my food isn't heavily, it's not sauce-laden, it's not, I don't use a lot of butter. Mm -hmm. I like things that are, have more acid. Um, my presentations are cleaner. You know, being more reserved on the plate is more important to me. No more than three to four things on a plate. You're not um, trying to overwhelm I'm not the diner. To, right. Yeah. And I think that that is directly, comes directly from her cooking. Hmm. It's interesting. And I've never thought her, about food in that her sense Her cooking before. comes from Rebecca's cook, Rebecca Charles cooking, right. which is 
a blueberry pie is a blueberry pie, or clam chowder is four ingredients. Uh huh. You know, it's done un- perfectly. Yeah. Yeah. And um, a lot of places uh, that you go to or that are successful now have, you know, a lot of French technique, a lot of you know, a lot of different flavors on the plate, ingredients from all over the world, and um, that's just not who yeah. who I am as a as a, as a chef. But yeah, so I pick those things up from simple is better mm-hmm. and, um, you know, not overwhelming the diner with something. Great ingredients. Yeah. Prepared perfectly. Right. Get out of the way. Let a tomato be a tomato. Yep. Yeah, what, what is the difference between a great home cook and a, and a serious multitasking? Really? Yeah. Say more about that. Like, so uh, a, a, a great chef is able to put his vision on a group of people, they produce the food, He's gotta, he or she has to make sure that food is coming out of the kitchen exactly the way that he or she has told the mm-hmm. cooks to do it, all while listening to the, kitchen, the dining room and the server and, you know, uh, did something not come in that needed to come in? How do we adjust to that? You know, let's say the, the grapes are all moldy and now our grape, uh, dessert plate has got to change, and right. how do what do, you know? What decisions do we make, and what life experiences have we had to make that decision? Right. When has this happened before? Adjusting on the fly. I've been some. I you know. I was on vacation in wherever, and I had this, and I think it might go good with this, and and it's also listening to other people. I feel like a home cook really has their vision, and that's it. But a, a sh- Right? I mean, they, yeah. go, they go to a cookbook and they say, I'm going to make that roast chicken this way. I'm not going to listen to anybody else. I'm going to make it that way. Right. Whereas a chef has to say, there's the sous chef, there's the maitre d', there's the, the servers who are saying, nobody likes that. you got to make it this way. Uh-huh. I can't you know, sell you did, that. You can't yeah. sell it. you got to take all that into account in order for a good dish to come out. So you're just as much coach, team leader. And, yeah. And, yeah. Um, you know, and... Uh, being in a kitchen, it's a, really you got a band of misfits, right? Because nobody has enough money to pay for the guy who's straight out of culinary school that has their head put together and knows what they're right. doing with their life. So you've got you know the coaching aspect, but also you have to be a priest and a judge <laughs> and a policeman and yeah, a referee, a referee and a, and a right. therapist. Wow, it's heavy stuff. Yeah, it is. We used to say it all the time, like, this is not, it's not easy. Mm-hmm. But you have to have the temperament for it. Right. What is the, of the people that you know that do it well, is there a particular temperament that's suited well to it, a particular set of, of traits or characteristics? You know, everyone says, uh, you know, oh my gosh, that chef's a yeller or a thrower, throws things and yells at people. I never see those as successful restaurants. Mm-hmm. They might have good food, the chef might be well known, um, but at the end of the day, does he or she have their employees' backs? Do the employees have his or her back? Um, do they believe in the mission of the restaurant? I mean, I think a good telling aspect of that is, is when you go into a place and people have worked there for a long time, you know, you go back, Time and time right. again, it's the same people. Yep. And um, 
a place that doesn't have a lot of staff turnover. Yeah, yeah. I've only worked, uh, well, I, my, my second job was as a busboy, and that doesn't count at a Murray Calendars. I spent a couple of years working for uh, a married couple who owned a small European bakery mm -hmm. in Idaho and cared, same thing, perfect ingredients, yeah. you know, get out of the way of them. But they had hourly employees, you know, they had people that were making $9 an mm -hmm. hour that had worked for them for 14 years. Yeah, I mean, that spoke more than anything else about what they were and what they were building. I mean, kitchens are hot, they're yeah. sweaty, it's hard work, you're on your feet, and I have to convince these people to do it for $12, $13, $14 an hour. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so you're, everything you said, you're part drill sergeant, you know, right. you're counselor, confidant, leader. Right. Yeah, and you're, and you're continuing to do that because you're bringing right. in Drake Camera to shuck. Yeah, oysters. I mean, we're gonna Friday see. Night. We're gonna see. Like you know, well, maybe that class, that physics class at Ohio State, isn't as bad as I think it is. <laughs> right. That eight o'clock class or whatever. Right. What compare that experience, your experience, to the prevalence of culinary schools? Do you, when people come out of a culinary school, like, do you have to They're completely soft. retrain them? You do. Yeah. I mean, it's nice that they have a a base baseline of you know what's what, but they literally don't know anything. You know, they... Uh, About how to apply that in the real yeah, world. Yeah, I mean, they're in school. They get up at whatever, 9 o'clock, they go to class, they, they do their work, they, they know their stuff, but uh, that, you know, working in a restaurant isn't that. Yeah. It's 2 o'clock to 1, 1 a.m., and then you get up and do it again. Right. Or you go out with your friends, and then you get up at, go to bed at 4, and then you get up at noon, and then you do it again. Yeah. That's always... It's uh, hard. Yeah, I, like... That's another thing about it is that it's got it's got just as much in common with sort of an entertainment yeah. lifestyle. You're yeah. living the same schedule. Right. You're awake at night. You're sleeping during the day. Right. You're having to perform. When everybody else is having fun, you're working. Right. You're part of that culture that supports everything else yeah. exactly. that happens. When I used to um, when I used to travel for a living and tour manage, I used to have like late at night driving. I used to have this mental imagination that I could see like a map of the United States and it was it was all the people who were awake and doing the support work while everybody else was asleep. It was like this culture that was sort of overlaid over the top of yeah. the culture. Yeah. Yeah. And that's very much a part of that because yeah. it's this whole support structure that's making everybody else's lifestyles possible. Yeah. So these days, um, how much of that are you still doing? Like in your role now as... A restaurant tour that sounds to me I mean I think the anchor is it's a large it. a larger scale than either of those places that you've described yeah so uh, yeah so Bro uh, Brooklyn Fish Camp did not have you know had I believe 45 seats and then there were another 20 seat patio in the back um, this is 75 seats inside and another 50 seats outside okay so it's huge yeah and um, we you know we're this September will be six years um, open for business, and it's it's running. You know, we've hired a chef mm -hmm. um, and a general manager, and they know what they're doing, and it's basically running itself. Right on. You know, are you still cooking there? Um, I'm not. Okay. Yeah, the, our chef Stephen Shockley does the cooking. Is that good, or do you miss it? Um, I mean, I, are you at the part, part point in your career where you're like, no, that's totally fine. I it is not. totally fine with me. I think that's the intention. Okay, is that uh, you know somebody else comes in and yeah does our vision right. You know, you've got now the guy that's 
accomplishing your vision. Right. Yeah, and he's at that place in right in his career. I mean, somebody else uh, had said to me the other day, well, I go in, you're never there. And I'm like, I'm there every day, one. And two, <laughs> you didn't see the five years of doubles I pulled. Right. You know what I mean? Like, Yeah, I, totally. If you put your time I've got in. No, yeah, I've got no shame in saying, hey, you do this now, and this is how I want it done. And, right. And, you know. And also, did you enjoy your meal? Yeah, then, right. Then shut up. I'm doing my job. Right. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, there is a, people do like to see the owner of the place around, so. I understand that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, so the idea is, you know, a bar somewhere else that's affiliated with the. Oh, that's your next idea? I think so, yeah. Okay. They're going to put a soccer stadium two blocks away. So. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, we, the previous guest to you, Corbin Bone. We were talking about uh, all of that, but that's all dropping right into your neighborhood. It was like Christmas when they announced Imminently. it. Imminently. Yeah. Yeah. What three three blocks from you? The MLS. No, it's going to be two. Seriously. Yeah. So that it, the entrance will be on Central. That's crazy. To the stadium, according to the drawing I saw. Yeah. So it's even a block closer. <laughs> you pretty much expanded as far as I I know in that building. You can't add seats or anything like that. So it's expand to another spot. Yeah. Okay. Tell me about that. What's the idea for that? Well, I think like an old an old school uh, bar uh, with really good bar food. Okay. You know, nothing fancy. Um, you know, it doesn't have to be a sports. It's not going to have like a theme per se, but it will be. Oh my God, that was a really good chicken wings. <laughs> what was that flavor? <laughs> right. This you know is the thing I mean? I've had a million times, but it's the right. best I've ever had it. Right. So, so your relationship to food now, your seafood has been for your entire career, kind of. Where you're at. Yeah. Um, your, the anchor is, uh, it's not by my opinion. I mean, you guys won the best uh, seafood restaurant and the best raw bar mm -hmm. in Cincinnati 2012, 13, 14. All, all the way to this year. All the way to this year. Which so, we didn't win. Oh, really? We got second place. Oh, sorry to <laughs> yeah, sorry okay. rub salt in your wounds. No, there. that's all right. Um, but still. Um, I'll tell you who did win, which was interesting, was... Um, not Mitchell's. It's the uh, Bonefish Grill. Really? Yeah. So it's a giant corporate. Right. That says more about Cincinnati right. than it does about you. Well, I just think that they, you know, they have a bigger platform. Yeah. It's always surprised me that, like, look at the Yelp reviews for, like, great vegetarian food in some restaurant, and McDonald's comes up on the Yelp reviews or something like that. It has yeah. more to do with what Cincinnatians are rating and what they think they have the right to expect than it does with the quality of the actual restaurant that you're seeing. Cincinnati's funny. It's like, uh, Terry said that she wanted a, a, a resume or a CV, and I thought, well, just Google me. And then I thought, oh, shit. Maybe I should Google me first. Right. So I did. It's there. Uh -huh. So I did, and one of the first things that comes up is a Cincinnati Magazine article, re review article. We were four, three or four months old at the Anchor, and... Um, it's general practice when a reviewer comes in, they give you a call and you talk to them about your restaurant. And I had mentioned to Donna Corvray, who was at the time was the dining editor of Cincinnati Magazine, that um, you know the lobster roll that we serve is this exact same recipe um, that we served in Brooklyn and, and at Mary's. And we'd won awards for that. We'd won competitions. There mm -hmm. was a lobster roll rumble t uh, in New York City that we won um, a couple years in a row. And I was the guy making that dish. 
Yes. And uh, it was the first thing she talked about in the review, and she says, uh, Derek mentioned that to me twice in a conversation, and this lobster roll is not award-winning. And I thought to myself, hey, who still has a job here? <laughs> right? There you go. She, love you, Donna, but... Last word. Last word. Yeah. Right? Nobody's complaining about it when they eat it. No. And she's no longer the dining editor either. So, <laughs> so what, is your, um, what is your career and the things that you've done? How does that change your relationship when you go to other places? When you go around town... Can you, like, I, I was in radio for a long time, and so, like, I couldn't listen to the radio because I was critiquing everything that happened. Oh, I, love, I love to eat out. No, I, okay. I'm a big supporter of um, everybody in, in Cincinnati. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like to go to Chicago. We were just there a couple weeks ago. Um, one of the greatest things that Mary did for me uh, when I first started working at Mary's Fish Camp is she gave me a credit card, and she said, every month I want you to go either buy a bunch of cookbooks or mm-hmm. go out to eat mm-hmm. on your days off. And this is, the, the restaurant's going to pay for it. And um, so I, I still, you know, we still, Jocelyn and I try and go to every new place that opens up. Um, but I think that's essential for a young cook to go and see who's doing what, what they're using. I mean, if you don't know who's doing what, then you're not in the game. Yeah. Yep. And... Um, it's funny to see the trends, sort of, they come and they go, and, um, you know, ramps are really big here in, in, uh, in, in the Ohio Valley, and, you know, at the end of the day, there, it's an onion, yeah, right? right? Yeah. Um, and there's not a lot you can do with onions, although onions are in everything. But we had went to Chicago and had, uh, we ate at this restaurant called Bad Hunter. I took my, both my managers. And uh, we ate at this place called Bad Hunter, and they served us this ramp dish that just blew my mind. <laughs> but the reason it was so good was because it really was, it was subtle. It was just ramps, mm-hmm. you know? And everyone's trying to, like, do something else with the ramps. Rather than just letting them be what they are and let them be great. Yeah. Yeah. Is the, is the relationship, is the food community relationship strong here? Or is it competitive in Cincinnati? Um, I think it's really strong. I think that uh, there are a lot of... Uh, you know, sort of the elite chefs here in the city really support one another. Um, I think we go back into our kitchens and we're like, I can't believe he's doing this or doing that. But at the end of the day, you're still supportive. Everyone is hugging each other. Yeah, it's like it's a good it's a good community. That's great. Yeah. What uh, What do you eat that would you know that you're not supposed to eat in your in your current position? Like, 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 where do I? Go what are your out? embarrassing? Uh, Food predilections. I don't have any. I'll eat anything. Are you are you a particular guy? Or are you sort of like no? I can go to. A- I can go. I can go to. Um, I can go to Max and order a pizza mm-hmm. that I know is frozen and goes through the you know gets reheated. Um, I'm a I'm an equal opportunity eater. <laughs> I will eat anything. Seriously, and it's it's a lot of it is about place and. Who I'm with and yeah. how I'm feeling, you know. Um, I uh, my son just turned 12 on Tuesday, and we I took him to Boca. Uh, my wife was out of town, but um, so I took him to Boca, and uh, I asked if uh, the chefs in the kitchen could sign his menu. Nice. And they all signed their names and wrote happy birthday. And then they asked if he would like to come back to the kitchen. Oh, that's cool. And expedite with uh, Chef Andy Tanner, and so he did. And uh, I, I mean, it, 
that's that's community. That's really cool. Yeah, and that's really cool. Right on. Are your kids like? Do you think they food snobs? I yeah. do. I, yeah, they. Uh, well, I do. It's not even snobs. But at least, do they appreciate? Do they know? They what, do. Okay. I, you know, I um, Julian, who's uh, twelve, I catch him watching um, Baking Network or Baking Channel. You know, like Cupcake Wars or whatever. Uh-huh. Um, my daughter could take it or leave it. I think um, she eats only like four different things. <laughs> but uh, she's going to be the athlete in the family. She's going to be the athlete. Yeah. You know, it's salami, olives. <laughs> Cliff bars and, and any kind of junk food you can give her. I love it. Yeah. At, at this point in your career, what are what motivates you now? I mean, you talked about like you've got some goals you'd like to open another place, but in um, in a, what are you looking for? Like in your in your deepest so sense? I'm really excited uh, about what's happening now in Cincinnati. Uh, you know, there was a long eighteen uh, month renovation of Music Hall. That's mm-hmm. back and going. Um, the park is sort of coming. The programming is coming along. It's in full force. People are opening restaurants that are interesting and challenging. Um, and uh, it's good to see the dining public coming out and uh, experiencing different things. You know, five years ago, half these places didn't exist. Yeah. And now you'll go to a Spanish tapas place or... Um, a wine bar or a diner that serves high-end uh, matzo ball soup, you know, to uh, tasting menus. They never used to be tasting menus right. in Cincinnati. Right. And it's good. And it's good food. Yeah, consistently good. I mean, that's the thing is we're getting to the point where, well, I, I should ask you this. It feels like some of the great places in town now have started to reach a capacity where you're seeing places that aren't consistently great or aren't doing something that you really call out, just can't, can't take it anymore because they're not the only thing doing their thing, the only place right. doing so their thing anymore. I really think that in Cincinnati in particular, um, you know, we're used to Montgomery Inn, Ribs, Graders, Skyline, um, La Rosa's. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, those are sort of the staples, yeah. and they've been a long, around for a long time. So I think if you're a new restaurant and you have a, a style of food that you like to do, if you can sort of last six, seven, eight years, the general public sort of comes around and they're like, that's a place we have to go to. Right. And I feel like the anchor is sort of getting to that point. Yeah. Um, To give you an example, when I first uh, came back into town and was sort of shooting this idea of opening an oyster bar up, people were like, are you crazy? Like an oyster bar in Cincinnati? We're about ready to serve our 400,000 oyster at the anchor. That's almost a half a million oysters. That's crazy. And where you are was a place that, like, people from the outskirts wouldn't even wouldn't go, even go when you moved right. here. Right. You know, the West Siders were like, "Go downtown. It's dangerous." Right. Now you got people flocking down to the new music hall, to, eat to Washington Park, to eat seafood <laughs> at the Anchor. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's amazing how much it really has changed in that time. What? What? do you feel, what skill do you have that you have always had that you sort of bring to what you do that makes you successful? I'm compassionate. Really? Yeah. I mean, I mean, I say really because that's not, again, that's not the answer. I, would, I might have expected drive or I might have expected no, like... No, I think at the end of the day, um, there are a lot of people that come through your door, employees or customers that have either had a bad day or things aren't going quite their way or, you know... Either you're gonna, they're going to sit down, order a plate of food, and have a, an experience that makes them feel better. On the back end of it, if, if it's an employee, 
you know, um, if you can develop a relationship with someone where you care for them, they're going to care for you, mm. and their work is going to be better, and they're going to produce what you tell them to produce. Right on. I love that answer. Yeah, I mean, that's... What do you think... Uh, it's interesting, that answer is... Uh, I, I had a question written down here that I sort of wanted to ask you about chef culture in the United States mm-hmm. right now, because you do have the, the Mario Batali's and the Bourdain's and all this, like, rock star chef culture. Everything you just said is the opposite of everything. Like, it seems to me that chef culture, celebrity chef Well, that's what you see the in the United media, States. I think. Well, right. Yeah. 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 Um, well, you know, Batali is sort of, uh, he's a hard one to sort of talk about just because uh, he was really sort of the grand, the godfather of uh, West Village, you know, how to break out of that mold of being a, a small business owner um, and sort of create an empire. But at the same time now we've learned that, but we've always sort of known that he was... Uh, Doing things that were unsavory yeah. with, with along the way along the way, yeah. um, but he was definitely someone that, as a young cook, I could look to and say, "God, they're really doing really cool stuff over at Poe." And there's Mario, and his cooks will follow him into the street. It doesn't matter; they are hooked on whatever it is he yeah. says. Yeah. And um, do you think I mean, that that? Do you think that attitudes are changing, that people are... Because I do feel like that's something that, apart from the, apart from the media aspect of it, there's kind of this Bengali, like when you get a guy like that, people are like, well, I just have to, I just have to slog through 10 years of horror and abuse to learn what this guy has to teach me. Is that changing? Are people yeah. sort of holding Yeah, holding I think there are a lot of good standard? people out there as well. I mean, we only hear about yeah. the Ken Friedmans or the Mario Batali and uh, John Besh. Mm-hmm. I mean, those guys are jerks. Yeah. But there are a lot of really, really good people out there doing really good things that are compassionate and caring people and, and love food and love, love what they do. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So again, um, you know, the point of the podcast is people talking about work and sort of my imagining that people might be listening to this. And you mm-hmm. got somebody who's like, I care about food. I can cook well at home. It's interesting your answer about multitasking. I fancy myself a decent cook. You know, yeah, there's I'm, a- I'm, I'm off recipe most of the time. But the thing that drives me insane is when something throws off my rhythm. What you said about being able to multitask in the kitchen is the thing I can't do that yeah. drives me nuts. There's a lot of, uh, and I, I learned this early on, um, there's a, a lot of things that sort of are, you have to pay attention to. Mm-hmm. And once you've sort of organized those things in your mind, you know what your menu is, and you, you have to, the ticket comes in, as well as you know 15 to 20 other tickets, and you have to organize all that stuff in your head, who's cooking what, how long things take to cook, then you have servers coming in giving you special instructions, so that has to be taken into account. Then you have to remember it, and then it's on a timing thing, right? So everything's got to come up, and then it has to go out. Yeah. Um, I do have a funny story. Uh, in the beginning of uh, um, the anchor, uh, was really crazy busy. It was you know there must have been a um, show or something, and uh, I was overwhelmed with all of the tickets in the window and trying to keep it all straight a server came back and she was on her cell phone Mm -hmm. and I was like what are you doing on your cell phone and she was like I'm trying to find um, 
Nice. Uh-oh. <laughs> Live recording. Yeah. I'm trying to find directions for a customer. No. I assumed that she was on her cell phone because she was just on her cell phone. Texting she was somebody. Or texting somebody. Yeah. She was actually trying to do something good and trying to find directions for a customer. But I snapped. Uh-huh. And I yelled at her. Uh-huh. And she's like, you know what? Deuces. And she walked out of the kitchen. <laughs> oh. And... I didn't know what deuces meant, so I turned to my food runner, and I was like, what the hell did that mean? And she's like, it means she quit. Yeah. I was like, oh, she left. Um, but yeah, so that shows you my age a little bit that I didn't know well, yeah. what that urban also, slang is, but, no, but it also, she's it out. It sounds to me like you have changed over the course of this. You know, you just, you just said that, one, that your greatest skill you feel like now that you bring to it, that experiences like that have made you a dis- different person in terms of how you run your Right, restaurant. I mean, there's all these moments that you collect over time, and you're yeah. like, well, how would I handle that differently? And Yeah, you actually, um, the capacity to learn from them instead right, of saying... And, and to say, well, let's take, let's not react right away, let's... Right, right. Nine times out of ten, if we don't react, you get a much better result. Yep. But, so, so give us, uh, last question, I really appreciate you spending the time with us. Yeah. Uh, give us your insight into, you said that ramps are crazy in, in Cincinnati. What's going on in food culture that you as a chef are seeing that the general listener is not seeing that people could clue into? What should they be be searching out or looking for that's kind of the next thing that's happening? Well, one of the... An ingredient, I was going to say uh, styles of restaurants are changing. Mm-hmm. One thing that I... You know, I sort of grew up in sort of these very small, independently owned restaurants that there were no rules. You just did what you felt you wanted to do. Um, now places are becoming more streamlined, and it's all, it's, I want to call it the McDonaldization of restaurants. Like, there's one menu that never changes. Mm-hmm. Um, there are specials that come in, you know, uh, based on seasonality, but... Uh, if you can get everything streamlined, you know, there will always be that cocktail or that dish on the menu, then you've sort of become a success. And it's less about, uh, to me anyway, it's less about uh, having a passion for a region or a cuisine or um, a a place um, and more about how can I get these 25 people in under an hour and the next 25 people in. So there's, uh, it's, in some ways, it's kind of a sad thing because uh, the personality of the restaurant doesn't shine through as much anymore. Yeah. You know, I, uh, I'm not going to call out names or anything, but I'll go to a place and it's the same menu that I saw mm-hmm. a year ago. Yeah. yeah. I was just talking to so. my neighbor last night. We were standing out on the street and she said that she had heard somebody talking about a place. I don't think it's a Cincinnati place. I think it's just a thing that's happening mm-hmm. where uh, it sounds like I'm making it up, where there's like robots making noodles. Yeah, um, you've you've heard about this. I yeah. have not. It's like I thought food was one of the last places that we could actually trust that there were people involved, like that that you know the yeah. transactional nature of somebody making something to provide sustenance for you was something that we could rely We've on. We've gotten away from that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As we as we are in so many other areas of our society. Right. But you can still find you can still find good places people like you making yeah. good food right. finding sourcing good ingredients taking right. care of the people where they come from right. and getting out of the way yep well Derek thank you so much it's been thank a pleasure you. to talk to you I really yeah. appreciate you sharing your experience with us absolutely 
This episode of The Distiller was recorded live on location at Old Kentucky Bourbon Bar on the Mainstrasse in Covington, Kentucky. Thanks a million to Jeff Brandt and the OKBB staff for the bourbon and the hospitality. And again, if you're a bourbon drinker and you haven't been to Old Kentucky Bourbon Bar, you're missing out. Visit thedistillerpodcast.com where we link to Old Kentucky Bourbon Bar's website where you can see their specials and their entire fairly substantive collection of bourbons. Many thanks again also to Derek Dos Anjos. He was the host of our first episode and he was a great guest for this one. Again, Derek is the owner and the head chef of the Anchor OTR at 1401 Race Street in Over the Rhine, Cincinnati, Ohio. You can learn more about Derek and find links to both the Anchor OTR and Mary's Fish Camp in New York's West Village, as well as photos from the episode, all at thedistillerpodcast.com. The Distiller is produced, recorded, and hosted by me, Brandon Dawson, with co-production and booking from Terry Heist. Our show is mixed and edited by Justin Golden. Photography is by Kyle Wolf. Our logo was designed by Scott Ryan. And our videos are by Mike Helm of Minute Moments Pictures. You can find The Distiller wherever you listen to podcasts. And now you can find The Distiller on YouTube, where we have closed caption versions of our audio podcasts for the hearing impaired. Please do subscribe to be notified when new episodes are released. And if you like what you hear, please rate or review The Distiller wherever you listen so others can find out how to do so as well. Don't forget you can download episodes and find more information, including links, photos of the guests, and a map of all the show locations. And you can get in touch with us at thedistillerpodcast.com or do it by email, mail at thedistillerpodcast.com. You can suggest people you think should be on the show to talk about their search for meaningful work, somewhere interesting we should record the show, or something interesting we can drink while we do it. And whether by email, on the website, or on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, we always love to hear from you. Until next time, thanks for listening. Bye-bye.